Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Kas Müde, who's Professor of International Affairs at the University of Georgia. The conversation will focus on his 2007 book, Populist Radical Right Parties in Europe. But we'll also talk about his new book, The Far Right Today, which is not only written for an academic, but also for a broader audience. I'll post a link in the episode description so you can order it. Kasmita's work has played a crucial role for defining and conceptually delineating the populist radical right. He defines the radical right as an ideological group that combines nativism and authoritarianism. And he distinguishes it from the extreme right, which is more decidedly anti-democratic. His definition of populism as a thin-centered ideology that pitches the pure people against the corrupt elite has become the reference point for much political science work on populism. The conversation focuses on how the far right has changed over the past decades, not only as an actor, but more importantly, in the perception of mainstream society. While there used to be parties and movements at the fringes of society, they have now become mainstream. If you're interested in knowing more about Kuss and his work, you can follow him on Twitter under at or visit his website. Kass also writes a regular column for The Guardian. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Kass. Welcome to the podcast. So today we're going to first talk about your 2007 book on the populist radical right in Europe. And then we continue the conversation about the development of the far right more generally. And we'll, of course, also talk about your new book on the far right today. My first question would be on the 2007 book and really just what motivated you to write the book? How did you get to writing it? Okay, well, there, there's like a, a kind of an official narrative that sounds a little bit better than the real narrative. Um, so the official narrative was that I felt um, it was kind of time to take stock of where we were with regard to the study of the far right, of radical right parties, which I had started pretty much in the early uh, 90s, first a little bit as an undergrad with my MA thesis and then my PhD, but really exploded in the 1990s. And I, I just felt that um, there was so much out there, but it needed to be kind of integrated and, and in a critical way. Now, the real uh, story is that I was almost always on the job market. And I felt that a book on this topic gave me the opportunity to potentially get a book at a major publisher, which would allow me to move and, uh, and save my relationship pretty much. That's great to know, I guess, for people who are listening already that uh, yeah, we have the, the different narratives on how we got to the book. In terms of content, I think one key feature really of the book is that you put a lot of work into properly 
defining and conceptually delineating populist radical right parties. So maybe you could tell me again how you define the populist radical right and how you can distinguish them from other political parties. Yeah, and, and just to position that a little bit, because at the moment, pretty much uh, half of the discussions about populism are about the definition. Um, but most of the work on the radical right in the 1990s almost didn't look at definitions and um, followed this kind of a view that, that Klaus von Beimer had, that we, we kind of know who they are, so we don't need to define them. And Piero Ignazi was one of the few who had come up with a, a definition um, that was really well thought through, even though I, I disagreed with some points on it. And so I've, I had kind of worked on this for my MA thesis, where I had gone the other way around. In my MA thesis, I had looked at three different parties, which were relatively small and pretty extreme. Um, the NPD in Germany, the NDP in Austria, and the CP86 in the Netherlands, and looked at what features that we generally associate with the far right, do they share? Um, and my idea was, well, these are some of the most extreme cases, so here I will find some things. And, and actually, it wasn't that straightforward. And so for this book, I thought I'd go the other way around. And I actually am going to go from the literature and think about what are the key features. And so um, I defined them as the key features being nativism, authoritarianism, and populism. Now, nativism was kind of a consequence of that. Most of the literature spoke about nationalism, but argued that it was a certain type of nationalism, um, and, and then they would come up with ultra-nationalism or things like that. And I guess the, the reason was that within certain part of the literature, there are two types of nationalisms. One is kind of the bad one, the ethnic nationalism, and the other one is the good one, which is the civic nationalism or liberal nationalism. And I read several pieces, including a good book by Andreas Wimmer, that kind of argued in practice um, pretty much all nationalism is both civil and ethnic. And then I read uh, Hans-Georg Betz and some of the old work on U.S. politics where the term nativism was used. And that was kind of a xenophobic form of nationalism where it's not only about who we are, but also who they are. And I thought that that really um, defined the core of what the radical right is about. So in, in German, the infamous slogan, Deutschland in Deutsch and Ausland raus, <clears throat> so Germany for the Germans, foreigners out, that is really the core of what nativism is. And I think that is the core of what the radical right is. Then the second part um, was authoritarianism, which has always been problematic because it has different interpretations. But I actually come from um, more of the literature of social psychology um, and Adorno. And so there the term authoritarianism is about an attitude, not about a political system. And actually, I didn't really think much about that possibility. And I think authoritarianism, this idea that pretty much uh, without a strict government, there is chaos, is at the core of the radical right as well. They see almost everything as, a, as an order issue. Um, and so that's the second part. And then the third part was populism, which actually was a term 
that I had not worked with in my PhD, in part because I, I literally didn't understand Laclau. And at that point in time, there wasn't that much else. And, and so I thought I didn't particularly, I wasn't convinced by Hans-Georg Betz's definition, which went a bit more towards resentment. But in the meantime, I had done a lot of uh, work on populism. And so I thought that that was by now actually also a key aspect. And so this idea that society is divided into two different groups, the pure people on the one end and the corrupt elite on the other and that politics should follow what they believe is the general will of the people. So it is that combination of those three features that I believe was the core of this particular party family. And, and then I spent quite a lot of time on how to call that combination. And, and in the end, I'm not sure whether I got the right term, but um, maybe we can talk about that of why that is actually a struggle. Mm -hmm. So you have these three features, populism, and then the combination of nativism and authorita authoritarianism as the core of the radical right. Um, but then one important step in the book is to distinguish what you call the radical right from uh, the extreme right. So the uh, a qualitatively different form of uh, far right parties, I would say, um, that are then uh, even more extreme. Yeah, so in the... In my PhD, I, I still work with the, with the term extreme right, which uh, which in the 1990s was was the more common term. Um, but I always felt a bit uncomfortable because extreme was in, interpreted as anti-democratic. And having read a little bit more about it, I I believe that there is that there is a difference between democracy and liberal democracy, and that. Actually, the radical right, the parties that I studied primarily, such as Front National and Vlaamse Blanc, were not against democracy per se. They were not against popular sovereignty and majority rule. They were against liberal democracy. Whereas the Nazis and the fascists were actually against democracy as such. And so I used for them the term extreme right, and for the ones who accept democracy but are against liberal democracy, radical right, which is not that much different from the German constitution, except that it is not written specifically for the German case, but can be applied pretty much across the world. Mm -hmm. mm. What I find is interesting is that the for the populist radical right, we very often now see them basically claiming that they are the true Democrats. And I was wondering how much that is potentially also the case for the extreme right, or are, will they call themselves anti-democratic? Well, um, they, of course they used to. Um, the fascist and, and national socialist um, did kind of both. I mean, it, often in the... In, in the oppositional movement phase, they kind of uh, pandered to being the voice of the people and, and being a democratic force. But at the theoretical level, they were always fundamentally anti-democracy because as Hitler uh, described it, democracy was the rule of the mediocre. Um, today, of course, it's different because in many countries, there are very tight laws. And if you say that you're anti-democratic, you can be banned. 
Um, what you do see in, in groups like Golden Dawn, for example, is that they will, they will position themselves as a kind of a vanguard um, and, and as better. But to be honest, I know of very few relatively relevant parties that openly are anti-democratic. Rather, parties like Golden Dawn now and Kotleba in Slovakia, they will pretty much use symbols and inspiration from groups and uh, uh, historical groups that were fundamentally anti-democratic, like the Slovak fascist or uh, the National Socialist. Mm -hmm. mm. Today, of course, the term populism has become uh, very, very widely used and uh, is a bit the, the concept du jour in, uh, in political science and elsewhere. Looking at your 2007 book, it struck me that it doesn't seem, for me, didn't seem so central to your argumentation and that nativism is much more uh, at the core of the book. Would you agree with this? Yes, absolutely. And, and this is in part... Um, a struggle that I have been fighting over the last couple of years. But this is the reason why I chose the term populist radical right rather than radical right-wing populism, as, for example, Betts uh, did, which wasn't just so that I could coin my own term. I actually thought that my term would never catch on. Um, but as I argue in the book, nativism is the most important um, aspect, ideological element. And what the current parties are, are a populist authoritarian form of nativism rather than an authoritarian nativist form of populism. So by, by using that, that, that term and that order, I wanted to indicate also the importance of the different elements. And I do believe that populism is more than just a style or a strategy. I think it does inform the way that these parties see uh, society and it does, uh, to a certain extent, um, inform some of their policies. But the core, the key element of, of it all is nativism. And therefore, the book is much more about nativism than it is about populism. Um, so if we have then these three elements and can define the populist radical right, we can, of course, ask ourselves, and this is what you did in the book, about the demand side and the supply side. So demand side, what do voters want from these parties? And supply side, what do these parties provide in terms of issues and ideas? And maybe let's start with the, the supply side. What would you say are the core issues um, that the radical right emphasizes? Uh, the core issues are, are immigration and integration um, of uh, I mean, groups of people, particularly minorities. They could be immigrants or, or um, indigenous minorities or, or uh, domestic minorities like Roma or Russian speakers. Um, another issue is security, um, which has to a certain extent not just, it's not just about crime, Uh, and law and order. Uh, there, there's an economic aspect to it as well as an identity aspect. Um, an important issue is corruption and then European integration, even though that goes to a certain extent to, to issues of kind of identity. And, and so immigration, integration, identity, <coughs> um, security, that's kind of the core. Mm -hmm. 
and other than auxiliary other issues that, that that they add on strategically maybe even yeah that depends on the country um and as does the specific form of it so traditionally in eastern europe it was much more about integration whereas uh, in western europe it was much more about immigration there are certain parties um, that for whom the environment was very big. Um, for example, a center party in the Netherlands initially, um, there are certain issues they are very busy with um, north-south uh, economic transfers like in Flanders or traditionally Lega Nord. Um, so, so many of the parties will have their own issues. Sometimes religion is very important. Some parties are particularly anti-Semitic. Um, but I try to focus on the core that, that defines them and I think is important for all of them, even though some might have, in addition, uh, something that, that is also important or perhaps even more important. Mm -hmm. And then on the voter side, the question, of course, is who supports radical right parties? And I feel, especially in the last five years, there's been a strong narrative about what this electorate looks like. And the idea really is that the supporters of the radical right are somehow the left behind. There's also another narrative or a similar narrative that really calls radical right parties the new workers' parties. Do you agree with this narrative? Yeah, so the narrative of the left behind is a little bit... Um newer because it kind of shifts it shows a shift in i would say a normative shift where there's much more understanding for both the radical right and its voters um the the argument that it's uh, increasingly or mostly working class parties was already pretty strong when i wrote the 2007 book because it goes back to one of the brilliant observations of hans georg betz in his 1994 book of the so-called proletarization of uh, the electorates of the radical right. Um, now, that was very much based on pretty much two parties, the FPO in Austria and the Front National in France, and wasn't as pronounced at that point in time in other parties, in part because at that point in time, many radical right parties barely got to 5%. Um, I've, I've always found... Um, just in general, in terms of party families, defining party families in terms of class was always problematic. Even social democratic parties as kind of the worker party and as if all the workers voted for um, social democratic parties or communist parties was problematic. Um, I think that what, what, what is crucial of the successful radical right party in particular um, is that they pretty much get from, from everywhere, as, of course, we now know Hitler did, um, even though we do see that white working-class males are strongly like overrepresented, but they do not in any way, shape, or form constitute the or the majority of the voters. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, now you just mentioned that you think that using the left behind as a term also signifies a shift in a normative perspective on the radical right? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, left behind is, is not an objective criterion. I mean, when you look at the studies that use this term, then they don't 
like the way that they operationalize that, that is not in whether or not these people are left behind. It is a judgment on a certain group. And um, I, find, I find that a little bit problematic because some of them, first of all, there's a lot of people who vote for radical right parties who are not left behind. And if they are left behind, they're only left behind compared to about one or two percent of the population. Second of all, um, there is a group that is even more left behind, although you could argue they, by and large, were never represented, which is pretty much immigrants um, and their descendants. Um, and so what, what I find problematic in, in much of the discourse around the left behind is that it, there is a normative element to it which says, well, they were left behind by politics and therefore they have, like, this is a logical step or we have left them no choice, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's, that's problematic for two reasons. First of all, they did have a choice. Um, in many countries you have actually left-wing parties that would, um, that would address that so-called economic anxiety much better. And second of all, um, the, a, a significant part of the electorate of radical right parties is not in any objective way left behind. Mm -hmm. it's, that's also true in a way, that normative point for this description of the workers' party or the working class, of course, because it's very decidedly the white working class that supports the populist radical right. And the working class itself is not that white in most Western countries, right? Exactly, and 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 it's also not that male. Right? I mean, increasingly, uh, the working class, if you go beyond simply the industrial, um, is in is in kind of service sector, and and there's a lot of of women and women of color, who uh, who are part of that, and and who do not in, <laughs> vote for for the radical right. But I think I think uh, what it by and large goes back to to a large extent is the theory of, of status uh, loss anxiety, right? which goes back to at least 1955 of Seymour uh, Martin Lipset. And um, that is a much better theory. Right? That, I mean, if you want to be all objective and scientific, as some of the people who use the term left behind claim we should be, Then, then don't use left behind, which doesn't, which isn't an, a scientific concept in that sense, but, but use lipsits like statuses, loss anxiety, which, which is exactly what this is about. Like it's the white working class, which had a, a pretty solid status and which feels that it is now being not just, um, <clears throat> pushed down by whatever it is, the upper class, um, but is now being overtaken by a new group being immigrants who are, for some reason, not part of the working class. Mm -hmm. We've already started talking a little bit about how the, the populist radical right has changed and how their, their class support has potentially changed. So in your new book, The Far Right Today, you argue that we can categorize the different periods of the success or the development phase of the radical right and that we're now in a fourth wave of the far right. Can you explain that in a little more detail to me? Yeah, so it's a, it, it goes off of the, the three waves of von Beim of 1988, um, which 
is like my fourth wave, I guess, more of a heuristic device. It's not, I mean, there's some, some issues involved in that. But von Biden spoke about three waves. The first wave was roughly 45, 55, um, neo-fascism. It was only very small groups and only the MSI was relevant. This were remnants of the past. Then we had kind of a hybrid form of amorphous kind of protest. The second wave, roughly 1955 to 1980, which was mostly the Pujadist and, and some other groups. And then in 1980, started the third wave, which was the wave that he called extreme right, that most people would call radical right today. <clears throat> and um, my argument is that something changed in the 21st century, and it wasn't necessarily um, with the parties themselves. They haven't moderated, they haven't changed fundamentally, they still have the same core. But their role within the political system has fundamentally changed. They're no longer just new parties that challenge from the outside. <clears throat> they are now increasingly established parties that are part of the mainstream, and in certain cases already help define the mainstream. Mm -hmm. So mainstreaming, I guess, is a core concept in the new book. How did the radical right become mainstream? And also, is it is that only true for the radical right and not the extreme right? Yeah. <clears throat> At this stage, it's only true for the radical right, I would argue. But <clears throat> um, as um, Ackermann and De Lange and Rodin have, have shown much of the mainstreaming <clears throat> happened not because of the radical right changing, but of the mainstream right, and in certain cases, the mainstream left changing. <laughs> and um, I think that that increased even more after the so-called refugee crisis of 2015. We see it in particular with regard to immigration and integration policies, but we also see it with regard to European integration policies. Um, there is another aspect in terms of authoritarianism, which actually dates back to 9-11, and the radical right played very little role in that. Um, this is not so much the case with, with the immigration narrative, and I would also argue the European integration narrative there. In many cases, the radical right played an important role in, in the mainstreaming, in pushing mainstream parties more to the right. Mm -hmm. And what did, uh, what did 9-11 do? Well, 9-11 um, did two things. Um, First of all, it, it led to a securitization of politics and therefore made authoritarianism like a, a much broader concept in politics. And second of all, it shifted the dominance of the political debate from socioeconomic issues to social cultural issues, which were related not just to security, but also to identity. Um, and that opened up the space for radical right parties who didn't necessarily have that much to add on socioeconomic issues, but for whom identity issues was their bread and butter. And so after 9-11, when mainstream parties started to discuss the role of Islam in, uh, in, in their daily lives, as well as the relationship between Islam and, and Western values, right, <clears throat> that meant that the, the radical right, 
like had they had an answer there on top of that those type of issues which so far they had mostly um, discussed in kind of ethno-national terms like when i grew up it wasn't about muslims we talked about turks and moroccans but being against them only made sense from an ethnic nationalist standpoint whereas being concerned about muslims could now be linked to the issues of security the issues of pretty much liberal democracy, because allegedly Muslims are against gender equality um, and gay rights, um, as well as to a fundamental clash of values, of Western values. And so it really provided an in to the radical right and a way to um, discuss their core issues in, in an acceptable discourse and in part helped by I mean, clearly the mainstreaming of Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. And the idea of mainstreaming would then also mean that using this kind of narrative around Islam was only possible because it was supported in a way by mainstream media and mainstream parties? Yes, because that's important. I mean, 9-11 and the effects and the interpretation of 9-11 and the effects of 9-11, like, The, the radical right played virtually no role in that because in 2001, the radical right was pretty much only in power in Austria. Um, in many other countries, they were either marginal or marginalized. So most of these things came from the mainstream. Um, now, in part, in panic, right? And they tried to kind of bring that, reel that back in But as they say, the genie was out of the bottle. If you, if you by and large have, dis, have, um, have defined Islam as a threat to Western values, right? But then by and large don't really do too much about the Muslims that are in the country, then the radical right's going to say, look, we can close the borders, but they're already here. Right? And, and so we all agree that they are dangerous. So what are we going to do with that? Um, And for a variety of reasons, partly I don't fully understand why, uh, mainstream parties have pretty much just stuck with these social cultural issues over the last two decades, which have helped the radical right more and more claim like, and set the agenda. Mm -hmm. So you would argue that mainstream parties using the issues of the radical right didn't help to prevent further success by the radical right, of the radical right, but rather the contrary, picking up their issues, emphasizing their issues, taking over their positions rather strengthened the radical right. Yeah, it's something that I already addressed in the 2007 book, and, and I call it the Thatcher versus Chirac debate. And um, like individual country studies about the UK would argue that because Thatcher took up the issue of immigration in the 1980s, like brought down the rise of the National Front, which actually, if you look at it, the, the National Front was already imploding before that. And contrary to that was the view that because Chirac took up the issue of immigration, Jean-Marie Le Pen and the Front National actually uh, won and became bigger. And, and, I, and I argued that this was not necessarily contradictory because it, it has to do with issue ownership or as I prefer to call it, issue position ownership. And in Britain, because of internal problems and stigma, 
the National Front never really owned the issue of anti-immigration. Whereas in France, at the moment that Chirac took it over, the radical right Front National owned anti-immigration. And what you see in much of the 21st century is that mainstream parties pick up the issue of anti-immigration and Euroscepticism at a time that is already owned by the radical right. Um, But part of my argument is also that it doesn't necessarily matter that much whether you make the party bigger. To me, the, the challenge or the enemy of liberal democracy is not the radical right party. It is the radical right policy, whether it is whether it is being implemented by a mainstream party for opportunistic reason or by a radical right party for ideological reason. That doesn't matter much. Mm-hmm. Issue-wise, we've now focused uh, very much on questions of immigration, security, integration, Islam. But in the new book, you also emphasize another issue, and this is questions of gender. And you distinguish a benevolent and a hostile sexism on the side of the radical right. Yes, um, I had spoken about the issue of women in my 2007 book. And to be honest, at that point in time, I really didn't know too much about gender as a concept and theory. I just knew that there was a what they called a gender gap, which to a large extent was just a sex gap. There were just roughly twice as many men voting for um, the radical right that, than women. Um, but at the same time, I found that actually women were not necessarily that much underrepresented in the leadership of these parties compared to mainstream right-wing parties. Um, along the way, and particularly over the last couple of years, um, I got much more interested in the issue of gender, in part my wife teaches uh, on gender, and so I learned a lot from her. Um, But I also got very interested in the issue, not just gender as women and femininity, but also as men and masculinity. And I think one of the things that I, I also, that helped me understand being Dutch, was the rise of Forum for Democracy and Thierry Baudet, who, who has this really this kind of misogyny and toxic masculinity um, that I thought was only something that, that existed in really sad, dark spaces of the internet. Um, and, but actually, it's highly popular even in what belief they believe to be um, uh, an emancipated country like the Netherlands, which has many issues to it. And that's this issue that that women have that women are actually not weak and pure and should be protected, but actually that women now are powerful and kind of corrupt and that they um, that they manipulate men um, partly by sex and withholding sex and and partly by political correctness and to be honest when when i uh when I saw the first pieces on this, I thought, yeah, this is not really a big thing. But over the last two, three years, it has exploded. And and the emphasis on so-called gender extremism or gender ideology by politicians from Vox in Spain to Bolsonaro in Brazil to the law and justice in Poland and, and Orban in Horg, it is, it's become a really key issue. Mm-hmm. 
Would you say that's also a way to distinguish the extreme right from the radical right increasingly? Where on the extreme right, you really have still have these like the, the trophy women that need to be protected and are pure for the reproduction of the nation in a way. And on the other hand, in the radical right, you increasingly have this uh, more hostile sexism in terms of um, what you just described, the powerful women uh, that are dominating now and gender ideology taking over? Maybe with regard to the political parties, I could imagine that um, in Golden Dawn, Kotleba, you would have that. But if you look at the internet, then actually um, this idea of, of toxic masculinity and, and of... I mean, this kind of incel ideology of of uh, good women who are like uh, the Stacys and I forgot what the other one was um, the the bad women who actually have their own mind and are not just like available for sex for men that that you see that also very strongly in in pe with people who who clearly express extreme right ideas um, so I. And, and you still see many radical right parties who don't have hostile um, uh, masculinity. I mean, a party like the Party for Freedom, for example, uh, it just has the old school kind of benevolent sexism. Uh, a lot of the <coughs> the homo, uh, the, sorry, the, the feminationalism, where like uh, gender equality is being defended against uh, allegedly the threat from Islam still has very much that old school benevolent sexism in it. Mm. So in a way you're seeing, especially in Western Europe, maybe the, the two developments of this issue within the radical right. On the one hand, this femo and homo nationalist perspective, that is, we need to protect our, in quotation mark, liberal values from the threat of Islam versus a new type of uh, politicized sexism that really is this body type of, of toxic masculinity and very openly anti-feminist. Yeah, absolutely. You see, for example, also that this homo nationalism, um, where where gay rights are being accepted, not so much as liberal values, but as national values, uh, against against a barbaric or uh, underdeveloped um, uh, Islam, is something that is not really that popular in the South both the south of, of Europe and the south of America, like Bolsonaro, Vox, um, even Lega, are, are, don't, don't have this homonationalism. It's, it's, and the reason is because it is not linked to liberalism, it's linked to, to their nationalism. Like even, even uh, someone like Geert Wilders, like he, for him, uh, gay rights are not a liberal issue, they're a Dutch issue. For him, this is what Dutch values are about. And it's the same for the Swedes and the Norwegians and, and the Danes. But of course, these are not really Italian values or, or Brazilian values. And so in, in that sense, you do see that split. And, and there, there, are, there are still very significant differences within the radical right or within the far right, I should say. And to a certain extent, I think they're getting bigger for the simple reason that the far right is getting bigger. Mm -hmm. 
One issue that is unique to the fourth wave or is a change in the fourth wave that we haven't really talked about yet so much is that we now have full-fledged radical right government in Poland and Hungary, but you also write a lot about um, India and then Trump, of course, in the United States. And I guess this makes us re-evaluate the threat that the radical right, that the far right poses for so-called Western democracies or liberal democracies in general? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the goal of the radical right is, an, is to create an ethnocracy, an ethnic democracy in which pretty much democracy is limited to people of the own ethnic group. And you see this most um, outspoken in the case of Israel, um, where under Likud, in, in coalition with radical right parties, um, they by and large now have made Israel the state of the Jewish people, uh, ignoring 20% of the population who is not Jewish and primarily Arab. Um, but you also see it very, very much in the second term now of uh, Modi in India and the BJP, where they increasingly start to uh, define the new citizenship law and those kind of things, which is not exclusively Hindu. But if you actually understand Hindutva, they kind of see some other groups like the Sikhs as as kind of part of the Hindu nation. And so... The, this is something that actually Michael Minkenberg already noted a long time ago, um, where he said, well, uh, as far as the radical right changes things, it's not so much that they change the system, but they change who is part of the demos and who is part of the population. I think that is, um, that is something that you see more subtle and, and less subtle. Um, at the same time, you also see other aspects which are not necessarily part of the radical right alone, uh, but massive corruption and kleptocracy in, in the case of uh, most notably Hungary and, and just an undermining of pretty much any form of dissent. Um, not only liberal dissent in, in the case of, for example, Hungary, even conservatives who are anti-Fides are being fired from positions in universities. One other argument that you make in that regard, and I guess this is important if you want to evaluate the current development and its risks for democracy, is also that you've argued that mainstream right parties have increasing, or it's become increasingly difficult to distinguish mainstream right parties from populist radical right parties. Yeah, I mean, there are more than enough examples. I think the, the best example is actually the situation in, in France, because France was already in the 1990s kind of seen as a country where the mainstream right had moved very much to the right to, to kind of fight off Front National. And we've talked about Chirac picking up the immigration issue. But still, if you compare the Gaullist party under Chirac in the 1990s, um, with uh, Les Républicains today and see the difference between the Gaullists of the 1990s with the Front National then and Les Républicains with uh, the Rassemblement, uh, Rassemblement the National in today, like, they're almost the same. Like, look, at, look at Boris Johnson um, in Britain, 
who who has almost as much in common with a radical right party as with a conservative party, you know, the Republicans, of course, under Trump. Um, but there are many, many uh, cases where it really becomes very, very difficult. In courts in, in Austria, um, with his Neue Volkspartei, like, I'm not saying that they are radical right, although in the case of Fidesz, like, I think that's pretty clear. I also would argue that by now the Republican Party in the U.S. is a radical right party. But I think one of the most important things for scholars of, of the far right in, in general and of party politics in general is that we have to go back to the different concepts that we heard, that we had, and our operationalizations and our classifications. Because actually, in the 1990s, as a, as kind of going full circle here, when we started, many people didn't really uh, define, let alone classify parties. They just, by and large, went with what everyone thought was the case. And so you have some some of these parties that for a very long time are considered to be radical right, which, for example, is the Progress Party in Norway or the Lispin for time in the Netherlands, mm. which maybe you could make a case at that point in time, the most anti-immigrant party um, in, in their country at that point in time. But by today's standards, like are among are more moderate than various parties that we do not consider to be radical right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think I think being kind of a scholar of party families more than more than perhaps other things, like I, I'm I'm very challenged by this. Mm -hmm. I'm very challenged by where today does conservatism stop and the radical right start? Mm -hmm. Is this still a meaningful difference? And 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 how? Like it, it can't just be from the gut. We can't just say, well, Quartz uh, is not radical right because his party is traditionally a conservative party. We know that parties change. Um, mm -hmm. And again, this, I mean, for me personally, this is uh, an important issue. But it's not limited necessarily to the to the mainstream right. I mean, let's let's face it. We still talk about social democratic parties. Mm -hmm. um, for parties that in no way reflect social democratic values and policies anymore. Mm -hmm. I guess that uh, that thesis is one that we will have to discuss in a in, a, in the next podcast. Um, I have one final question for you um, because it very much matches the uh, a topic that we've discussed very often in the podcast already, um, and that is a question, a hypothesis, a thesis that you have at the end of the book. Um, that states the rise of the radical right is about de-alignment rather than realignment. Can you explain that thesis to me? So my argument is that um, at this point in time, the radical right is mostly profiting from the fact that people who used to be part of other party families, most notably the Social Democrats, but also Christian Democratic Party, those subcultures have pretty much like evaporated. Mm -hmm. um, and we now have a large group of people, including young people and new voters, who, who, ha who are not aligned. Uh, at the same time, when you look at a lot of the support of the radical right, then they do have a solid group, a core, but that core is often 
only half of what the successful party is. I think the Danish People's Party is a good example. Right? They don't mm. fall back to 0% because they do have a core of 10%. The FPO, whatever the scandal is, also doesn't mm. fall back to zero. They fall back to about 10%. But they can extend that to 20 25%. And that 15% mm. right, hasn't realigned to the radical right. And mm. I don't think that's necessarily specific to the radical right. I think that we are just entering a phase in which you don't have large parties anymore, parties of a third or, or bigger, and where the largest group of the electorate is unaligned. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's important because we speak a little bit too often, we, we make the enemy, like the thing we fear, stronger than it really is. Like mm-hmm. they are not masterful communicators. They, they are not like the new socialism, like socialism was not just an ideology, it was a whole infrastructure. Mm-hmm. The radical right in almost non, no country has that. I mean, India is an exception and perhaps France, but in most cases, like radical right parties and leaders have, have pretty tenuous, like thin links to their voters. And so that's why I talk about dealignment, because that is clear there are a massive group of people who no longer are part of an infrastructure but there mm-hmm. is very little realignment mm-hmm. thank you Cass. i already have the last question for you and this is something i ask everyone in this podcast series as we are still recording um, under government made mandated isolation due to corona um, so my question is on reading recommendations and i would ask you to recommend one political science, more academic work, and may one other work that's not necessarily academic and uh, maybe fiction or just something that is uh, ad- addresses a broader audience. Yeah, so with regard to the academic text, I would um, recommend an article, in case you haven't read it yet, by Margaret Canavan, who was not just a phenomenal scholar, but a wonderful woman too. Um, who in 1999, if I'm not mistaken, wrote an article in Political Studies about populism and the relationship to democracy, which which really is, the, I think, the best the best thing ever written about populism. Now, with regard to other readings, I could go with um, with a, a novel. There's mm-hmm. actually a German novel about uh, politics, in particular. Um, the so-called refugee crisis of 2015. I think it's uh, Jenny Erkenbeck, um, which translates as uh, going, gone, went in English. It's originally in German. It's a beautiful book, but I do want to plug also a new book that just came out by James Montague, which is called 1312, Inside the Ultras, which is about um, the ultra kind of hooligan Mm-hmm. Uh, seen in football around the world. And unlike most of the books that I call hooligan porn that mm-hmm. are just pretty much written by people who know very little about hooligans and, and just describe the most the most sensationalist parts of it, uh, James actually went all across the world and met with the different ultras. And it's a fascinating book also from the perspective of politics. Great. Thank you so much for this really interesting conversation, Cass. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you.